Thanks, Bob. Good morning. Okay, I can't hear anything up here. Is the mic on? Yeah, okay. Um, thanks, Bob, for praying us in there. Um, prayer is so important. Um, in As we approach our marriage relationships, as Bob um, mentioned and as Dallas was so passionate about, this isn't just for the marriage, married guys. This is for the guys that are waiting to get in the fight, so to speak. Um, for, for the guys that have been in it, and when we get to the questions around the um, tables, that's really where we will be able to get some of your experience. And for those of us that are, that are in the battle right now, that's where we need to hear from the folks that have been there already. Um, this semester, in this semester, we are looking at ways that um, we can address that second critical marriage in our relationship. I'm sorry, that second critical relationship in our, in our, uh, uh, that second critical relationship. The first one being our relationship with Christ. The first one being our relationship to God, and that's what we talked about last semester. Now we're going to talk about our relationship to our spouse, to our wives, um, to our family, and to other aspects that ultimately leads to our relationship to the believing world. But we have to get first things first. Um, in Genesis, Moses wrote about God creating a suitable helper for Adam. Because it's not good for him to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. God took Adam and created a most complex and different being. And marriage is wonderful. Uh, but it's also very difficult for the same reasons that we are now joined with someone that is very different than us. Not only is woman sexually, emotionally, and in other ways different, um, yet together we reflect that image of God. Um, that's marriage because it is a reflection of God. It is God-ordained. It, um, uh, it, it gives God glory, and therefore it is a target. Um, Based on the energy expended to destroy marriages, it's clearly important to God's plan, and it's important to the expression of his glory and is under spiritual attack. I'm sorry, I did not look too closely at the previous slides. These were Dallas's, and here's where we're talking about where we are in the focus and we went to laying the foundation and now we're in the equip in the our first mission field Christian marriages so on the marriage that's what I was looking for the relationship to God and us and the relationship to us and our wives are all building and drawing us towards God and glorifying God so we're going to discuss this new relationship the relationship between husband and wife by thinking about this and talking about it in our table groups it's my prayer that each of you have either the opportunity to strengthen your own marriage or influence another one at your table, another brother, in building their relationship. We're basing this series initially on Gary Chapman's book, Covenant Marriage. This book is geared towards building practical skills for building and marriage. Today I'll give an overview of contracting covenant marriages, and next week Bob will be here to discuss if the covenant marriage is a dream or it's a reality that we can grasp. Of the two concepts, the covenant and the um, contract, I think contracts are easier for us to understand. 
we live in a very contract-oriented society. Um, many contractual relationships are formal. Some of them are informal. Some are spoken. Some are unspoken. But they're still contracts. And contracts bring a legal basis, such as when I agree to pay so and such and such for so-and-so service, um, there's the expectation of be that being upheld by both parties. In those cases, we sign on a dotted line, and sometimes we shake hands, sometimes we're just forming an agreement, but they're legally binding. And there's legal repercussions for breaking a contract. Our, there's also contracts that are morally binding that don't have the legal force behind them. Those are the things like I have an understanding with my wife, Mary, that the first of us home in the evening generally cooks, and the one that doesn't cook generally cleans up the dishes. And that's just a contractual relationship we kind of have. And if one of us doesn't uphold that part, their part of the bargain, there's a feeling of failure there and of disappointment. Um, there's no legal bindingness to it, but there's a, it's a moral issue. Uh, many relationships have ended because one party failed to uphold their part of the deal. If it's a legal contract, well, we sue each other. We go to court and we try to find a fair restitution for the breaking of that contract. If it's an informal contract, the broken contract becomes a source of a broken relationship, um, source of arguments, accusations, and abuse in relationships as we try to influence each other to get them to uphold what we consider their part of the agreement. Now, legally, marriage is a contract with certain rights and responsibilities, and Chapman distinguishes the legal marriage and the covenant marriage. In the legal marriage, if one party does not live up to expectations, well, legal action forces them to do so, or in the marriage in some kind of equitable settlement. In this sense, a marriage is definitely a contract, but it is. But for us, understanding that God has established marriage as a covenant relationship, it's more than a contract. Now, don't misunderstand. There are um, contracts within marriage are important because that's how we um, negotiate with each other, and that's uh, that's how we move forward in a relationship. But it is much more than a contract so long as we can operate as a team. If Mary agrees to visit my parents on the weekend, which happens quite often, I'll often reciprocate and agree at that time to visit her parents on the next weekend. And that's just how we work out things in a marriage. The problem arises when we view marriage as only a contract or a series of contracts. So we're going to look at contracts first because I think they're easier. Contracts are made for a limited time. You buy a car, you sign a um, paperwork that you agree to pay the bank so much for the car over a certain period of time. Because they're limited, we have to consider the risk involved if we break a contract. And that often comes into our thought, thought process. What is this going to cost me to break the contract if I need to? Um, marriages, marriage vows often involve statements like, so long as we both shall live. But the truth is that many couples consider their commitment valid so long as the relationship is beneficial. Once the relationship is no longer beneficial, we start thinking, what do I need to do to break the contract and what will the penalties be? Contracts often deal with specific actions. They're very specific. We will fix this, we will fix that, but these other things are not covered in the contract. 
Informal contracts with the marriage also deal with specific items, like the cooking example. Very specific. You do this, I do that. And it's just a way of negotiating and dealing with uh, regular family life. If made in the spirit of love and concern with each other, not what's in it for me, then they're a very effective way of implementing the covenant relationship. But you'll see contracts are often based on contingent, if-then mentality. If you pay a monthly fee, then I will do this. Or, and this one might strike closer to home, I'm willing to make her happy if she makes me happy in our marriage. This is a contractual, contractual mentality that has no hope of surviving as it quickly turns into, wait, she didn't make me happy. I'm not going to uphold my end of the bargain. Um, that is, in my life, that has caused a lot of pain and anguish um, as, we, as I think of marriage in contractual terms instead of covenant terms. And contracts are motivated by desire to get something that we want. It's essentially the ability to strike a deal. And we're trying to strike the deal that's most equitable to me. You know, 50-50, as long as my side's a little more. Um, and contracts are sometimes unspoken and implicit. They don't have to be specified, but they're often built on assumptions. Now, the covenant marriage, on the other hand, clearly expresses uniqueness about a Christian marriage. Covenant is a biblical term. The first time that it's used in the Old Testament is Genesis 6.18, where God told Noah that because of man's wickedness, he would destroy all life on earth. Then God told Noah that he would establish his covenant with Noah, and Noah would enter the ark, and God would preserve his family as well as the animal world. So let's look at that for a few uh, sorry, aspects of um, what a covenant is. God took the initiative to make that covenant. But it wasn't for God's benefit. It was for Noah's benefit. He accepted Noah, accepted God's covenant and built the ark. He entered into a covenant with God to do what he could, which was build the ark. And he accepted God's gift of deliverance, of salvation. Now, God's motive was not to get an ark. God didn't need Noah to get an ark. God's motive was for Noah and his family. Noah's willingness to build the ark indicated that he accepted God's covenants and offer of deliverance. Now, God went on to make other covenants with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant with Moses. Um, he confirmed his covenant with David, and the prophets often reminded Israel of God's covenant. In the Bible, we see people making covenants. So it's not just between God and person, but between people. Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Ruth makes a covenant with Naomi. Marriage in the Bible is also viewed as a covenant between a man and a woman. In Proverbs, the writer warns against being involved with a wayward wife who forgets her covenant made before God. Now, some commentaries refer um, that word covenant to the Mosaic law um, forbidding adultery, but more likely it's to the marriage covenant that she made before God. In Malachi, but I say to you, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So we look at covenant marriage, we need to look at those characteristics of a covenant as well. 
clearly for the benefit of the other person. Jonathan made a covenant with David, for he loved him as much as he did his own life. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with the rest of his gear, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. That was not for Jonathan's benefit. That was for David's benefit. The same is true for Ruth's covenant with Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be your, my people, and your God, my God. It was clear that Naomi had nothing to offer Ruth there, yet Ruth's commitment clearly grew from her co-being. Covenants are born from a desire to minister to others, not to manipulate in order to get something for ourselves. In the covenant marriage, each spouse is committed to the other's well-being. In a covenant relationship, people make unconditional promises. In Ruth's case, she did not say she would go with Naomi and see how things went. If it goes well, she may stay, but if not, she'll return to her people. That's not what she was saying. In a traditional wedding vow, we speak in unconditional terms. Despite our own nature, we enter into marriage using a language of covenant, not the language of contracts. But many people live as if it is a contract. Covenants are based on steadfast love. Steadfast love is not the emotional love. It's not the falling in love. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes steadfast love as a second kind of love that comes after the emotional love. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings, they come and go. But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love is a second sense. Love is distinct from being in love. It is not merely a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started that engine. Sometimes what we call steadfast love is translated as the word hased to either covenant or loving kindness. For example, for Lamentations, the Lord's loving kindness never, indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. A loving relationship is required for a covenant. A contract can be made with anyone. I don't have to love you to make a contract. But as we see in Ruth's relationship, Jonathan's relationship, and in God's relationships, those relationships involve loving relationships. And as C.S. Lewis hinted at, it's a choice we make. But as we choose to focus on the positive aspects of our spouse and give them affirmation, she is more likely to grow. Positive feelings will turn to positive feelings. But it starts with a decision, and that decision is for steadfast love. This is why Paul tells husbands to love their wives in Ephesians and challenges wives to learn to love their husbands in Titus. Covenant marriages, I'm sorry, covenant relationships view commitments as permanent. That's the language we use. When God made a covenant with Noah, he said, this is a sign of the covenant. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting lasting covenant between God and all living creatures. The language of the marriage vow contains statements of covenant of permanence. This is not a contract, so we can see how it goes and whether it's meant to last forever. 
This begs a question, and it's a tough question. Should Christians stay in a marriage that is destructive? Now, life is messy, and divorce, we recognize, flies in the face of the biblical idea, but that's a question we have to wrestle with. There's more to the question than just that of permanence, though. It's not a simple yes or no, because covenant marriages also require confrontation and forgiveness. Think about God's covenant with his people, with Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, others. God's people often failed to live up to their commitments to God. How often reading the Old Testament do you think, how can Israel continue to blow it, so to speak, time and time again? And yet God remains faithful. He does not abandon them. But he also did not ignore their failures. God confronted Israel with failures but stood ready to forgive. Confrontation and failure are essential parts of a covenant relationship. Confrontation is the other person accountable. And forgiveness is the willingness to lift the penalty and continue a loving relationship. In Psalm 89, speaking of God's covenant with David, he says, If his sons reject my law and disobey my regulations, if they break my rules and they do not keep my commandments, I will punish the rebellion. But I will move my loyal love from him, nor be unfaithful to my promise. I will not break my covenant or go back on what I promise. So God's response is confrontation and forgiveness. And ignoring failure is not a healthy thing to do. A person committed to loving unconditionally will love too much to remain silent when the other is breaking their agreement. They will, like God, though, seek restitution. Every relationship will experience failures. I've experienced failure in my relationship with my wife. And there is confrontation. There is forgiveness involved. No matter how hard we strive, we are flawed individuals. And confrontation doesn't have to be ugly. It's not meant to be ugly. But it is how we share our sense of being wronged, our sense of being hurt. Um, and it's our opportunity that we give each other to provide clarity, as well as an opportunity to help understand and then acknowledge the wrongness and ask for forgiveness. Both a willingness to confront and a spirit of forgiveness are essential in a covenant. Forgiveness is difficult. Some of us are very hard on ourselves, but we also take that and we are even harder on other people that we perceive as not upholding their end of the bargain. We need to understand that forgiveness is not something that we feel inside. I don't feel like forgiving, but it's a promise I make not to hold that failure against you. Chapman put it this way in the Covenant Marriage book. You have confessed it, and I will lift the penalty and treat you as though you had not failed. This is forgiveness. This is the forgiveness God gives us when we accept Christ's sacrifice for our sin. It's a forgiveness we are able to give others because we have been forgiven. Now, I know that's a lot to consider, um, but it sets a stage for building practical skills for developing those communication and intimacy in your marriage. So in your table groups, I'd like you to make any new introductions since we haven't seen each other for a while and answer some questions. Now, there's a lot of words up there, but the questions are, what holds your marriage together? Or what held it? Or what will hold it? Which position are you in the battle? Are you in pre-deployment? Are you engaged? Are you wounded? Are you there to support others? 
What contracts have you and your wife established? What's worked? What hasn't worked? And what elements of a covenant do you see as evidence in your marriage? Now, I stole these slides from Dallas, and that last one, ask your wife, do we have a contractual marriage or a covenant marriage? I think that's his homework challenge. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to get together as men and support each other. Lord, I ask for your blessing on the discussions today. I ask your blessings on the men as they wrestle with some very hard topics. In Jesus' name, amen.